0: Every year when I start to get ready for Monday Thursday, I wonder if I'll be able to come up with anything new to say. Uh, after all, every year for Monday Thursday, the sermon is on John 13. Just about every year we're coming back to this same passage. How can you say something about it you haven't already said? Well, I have to tell you, every year I come back to this passage, I am amazed that this passage has more to say. It is an inexhaustible Treasure. There is always some new layer of meaning, some new insight to be found. No doubt, uh, a lot of what I say year to year on Monday, Thursday is indeed repetitive. But I trust that God can give us a new and deeper understanding of this text. He can show us something we haven't seen before. Something that will challenge us, stretch us, mature us. And I trust He'll do that for us tonight. On the night before Jesus died, Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his death would mean. And so he did so not just by teaching them, but by giving them a meal and by engaging in a symbolic action. And so let's look at these things in John chapter 13. Verse 1 sets the scene. This is Passover. That's the context. John's Gospel has already associated Jesus with Passover. He's told us Jesus is the Passover Lamb. That's how John the Baptist identified Jesus. Behold the Passover Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Well, the hour has now come for the Passover Lamb to be sacrificed. Verse 1 identifies this as his hour. His hour has now come really interesting. You go back to John chapter 12, and there was just uh, a reference there in John chapter 12 to his hour. When the Greeks come to see Jesus, these non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, these Greeks, that signals for Jesus that the hour has now come. In chapter 12, verse 23, he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified And then he goes on from there to describe his death. So his death will in some way be a revelation of the divine glory. In chapter 12, verse 27, he says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is saying this will be his finest hour, the hour when he reveals God's glory in his sacrificial death. The hour when he paints a beautiful portrait of divine love by dying. In his dying when he is lifted up on the cross and thus will draw all nations, all men to himself. He's saying the hour has now come for the revelation of God's glory. The cross will be a revelation of divine love and glory. Indeed, it will be a revelation of divine glory disguised as a public execution. And that's why he wants to explain what's happening to his disciples. This hour sums up his whole reason for coming into the world. That hour has now arrived. Now the mission he came to perform will be accomplished. And so that clues us in to what chapter 13 verse 1 means when it says, His hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved To the end. What is this end? What does it mean for Jesus to love His disciples to the end? Well, the Greek word there is telos, which perhaps you're familiar with. It can mean the end in a temporal way in terms of time. So the end of His life here could mean end in in the sense of, yes, he's about to die. His life is about to come to an end. That's going to be it. But it could also mean the end in the sense of a goal being fulfilled or a goal being realized. His mission is going to be fulfilled. Everything he does here serves the mission the father gave to him. Even when he goes to serve his disciples by washing their feet, that serves the mission that the father gave to him. That's the end here. It's the end in the sense of fulfilling the mission that God gave to him. really both senses of end are in view here by loving them as he goes to his end to his death on the cross. So that temporal end, he's going to fulfill the goal, the end goal for which he came will be accomplished. His mission of salvation will be fulfilled. I, I think you could put it this way. What does it mean for him to love them to the end? It means he's going to love them to hell and back because that's what it's going to take for him to fulfill His mission. Verse 2 tells us the Passover meal is now over. John includes the meal, but he doesn't go into all the details of the Last Supper. And, of course, it's really the first Lord's Supper that the other Gospels do. Uh, John figures his readers know Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He figures they're already celebrating the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. And so he's not going to give us all those details. John is going to focus on what the meal means rather than the meal itself. And John's also going to tell us something else that happened that night in the upper room at the table that the other Gospels did not include, namely the foot washing. The meal and the foot washing really go together. And they go together because they both point to the same thing. They both point to his cross. The breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine, that points to his death on the cross. The foot washing is going to point to his death on the cross As well, And in fact, verse 2 even makes this connection, I think very clear, because it tells us that the devil has already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. That's connected in some way with Jesus getting up to wash their feet. Now, it's really important to understand what this foot washing is all about. The foot washing is a kind of enacted parable. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament prophets, they would very often engage in... Often very strange, symbolic actions, but those actions would interpret their message and their message would help explain the actions. And so it is here. This is an enacted parable. It is a symbolic action that reveals what Jesus is about to do. In other words, the foot washing is a key that unlocks the meaning of his crucifixion. It reveals what the cross is all about, what the cross will do. And really, you could say not just the cross, but really the whole gospel story of his death and then also his resurrection and his exaltation, as we will see. Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from and was going to God. Okay, break this down. What's happening here? Coming from God, that is his incarnation. The eternal son of God is sent into the world on a mission. He becomes one of us. He becomes a man. He was sent from God. He's come from God and he's going back to God. This is a reference, I think, to his ascension, his exaltation. So here you really have the bookends on his whole mission, the beginning and conclusion of his mission. John tells us here he knows all things have been put into his hands. And so what does he do? He uses those hands to wash feet. All things have been put into his hands. Those very same hands that will have Roman nails driven through them very shortly. All things have been put into his hands. And so what does Jesus do? He serves and he sacrifices those hands that possess the whole creation, those hands that hold the whole universe will now hold a towel. And it is as if that towel becomes the scepter of his kingdom. The surprising sign that Jesus is indeed king, that all authority is his. John says in verse 4, he laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself with a linen cloth. And I believe this is exactly parallel to what's going to happen later in the gospel. Very interesting, the language that's used here. Consider the parallels. John 13, he removes his garment at the crucifixion. He will have his garment removed. In John 13, he wraps himself in a linen garment. At his burial, he will be wrapped in a linen garment. He lays aside his garment just as he will lay down his life. The garment he laid aside, we learn in John chapter 19, is a royal garment. It doesn't have a seam, It's a kingly garment. And so what we have here is a picture of the king becoming a servant, the king using his power and authority to serve. But then after he washes their feet, in verse 12, he takes up that royal garment again, just as after his death on the cross and his burial, he is raised from the dead and he enters into kingly glory in a whole new way. See, John here, even just by telling us the the movements of Jesus' clothing... He's giving us the pattern. The royal garment is on and then it's laid aside and then it's taken up again. He's going to lay down his life and then he's going to take it up again. He's going to go through a humiliation and then an exaltation. All these actions are symbolic. This is symbolizing his humility and his exaltation. He stoops to wash us and then he rises up to rule us. That's the picture we have here. Now, this act of foot washing itself is interesting because... There are also parallels with this in John chapter 12. Don't lose sight of this. We didn't read John chapter 12, but it's easy to get the connection here. At the beginning of John chapter 12, there is a meal followed by a foot washing, or really it's a foot anointing, but we can call it a foot washing. And John 12 tells us this happened six days before the Passover meal in John chapter 13. So in John chapter 12, after they had eaten, While they were still sitting at the table, Mary came and anointed Jesus' feet with expensive oil. And Jesus interprets this action as preparing his body for burial. She anoints his feet with an expensive oil, and Jesus says, she is preparing my body for burial. So like the act of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13... That action in chapter 12 is all about the cross. The foot anointing and the foot washing both point to his coming death. In fact, the parallels continue in John chapter 12. Judas objects to what Jesus does. He says this oil could have been sold and the money given to the poor. In John chapter 13, Peter objects to what Jesus does. And like Judas, his objection sounds very pious. Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And when Jesus insists, then Peter says, well, okay, wash all of me. Wash me from head to toe. In chapter 12, the objection comes from his betrayer. In chapter 13, the objection comes from his denier. In both cases, Jesus overrules the objection. And note, too, this connection, the oil Mary used to anoint Jesus' feet was costly. But how much more costly is the water Jesus uses to wash his disciples' feet? Because that water points to his blood, which is the real cleansing agent, the blood he will shed on the cross. That water there symbolizes the blood. The act of washing the disciples' feet is really remarkable. This was, as I'm sure you know, typically a job that would have been done by a slave, and not just any slave, but the lowest slave, a Gentile slave, if there was one around. And yet here it's Jesus, who is the Lord and Master of all, who stoops to do this job, normally reserved for the lowest slave. He is God in the flesh. And in acting this way, he is showing us what God is like. When God shows up, when love shows up, this is what it looks like. When all eyes are fixed on Jesus, when all eyes are looking to Jesus, what is Jesus going to do? What is he going to show us? When all eyes are on Jesus, he kneels to serve. Indeed, he suffers and sacrifices himself and in so doing, reveals the divine glory. And we know this is what is happening because the story of the foot washing is sandwiched by statements that make this really, really clear. Before and after, we have statements that show us this is what is happening. In John chapter 12, verse 45, just before they go to the upper room, Jesus says, He who sees me... Sees him who sent me. The Greeks who came in John chapter 12, seeking after Jesus, said, We wish to see Jesus. And Jesus says, "Okay, well, if you see me, then you have seen the Father. When you see me, you have seen God. And then in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, right after the foot washing, Philip says, thinking back to those words of the Greeks, I think, Show us the Father. And Jesus says to him, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The whole point of all this is so Jesus can show us the heart of God. Why is Jesus doing all these things? Is to show us the heart of his Father, what God is really like. Jesus says, you want to see what God is really like? Look right here. Look at me. Look at me as I serve, as I stoop, as I suffer, as I sacrifice. I am showing you the Father. I am showing you what God is like. Now, if any one of us said that, you know, if, if any one of us were to say, ah, oh, you want to see God, look at me, we'd say that person was crazy. We'd say that person. Is deluded. If I said to you, if you want to know what God is like, look at me, we'd say, that's insane. (laughs) There's just no way that can be true. We can't make that claim, but Jesus can. He is God in the flesh, and God in Jesus is expressing his Godness. But this is what's so shocking. When God wants to show off his Godness, his Godhood, what does he do? How does Jesus do it? By kneeling, by stooping to serve, by washing dirty, smelly feet, including the feet of one who will betray him and the feet of one who will deny him. God expresses his Godhood by dying. For those who have sinned against him. He dies on the cross for those who crucified him. He dies to justify those who have condemned him. That's what God does when God shows up. That's what God looks like. God's actions in Jesus reveal the true character of God. And God's actions in Jesus, this is important to understand, this is really what Jesus is getting at. When God is revealing himself in this way in Jesus, these actions are not out of character for God. It's not like God temporarily decided to step out of his usual way of acting and living. No, Jesus has come to turn God's heart inside out. To turn the life of God inside out so we can see what the true and living God is really like. The presence of Judas at the table is really an interesting feature of this whole scene. Obviously, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows how the story will go. He knows what Judas and Peter will do later that night. He knows the script. In fact, he seems to not only be an actor on stage, as it were, he also seems to be the one who is directing everything that happens. And this continues to be true all the way through his crucifixion. Even when he's on trial, he seems to be the one who's really, the judge, the the one who's really in charge. In verse 18, Jesus makes it known that his betrayer is at the table. And he does so by citing Psalm 41. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel Against me. Think about that. Jesus has just washed Judas's heel. And now he says Judas will raise that heel. He will raise that heel trying to crush Jesus under his feet. In fact, it's really interesting. If you go back and read Psalm 41, read all of it to kind of get the context here. This is a really good thing to do whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Go back and read all Psalm 41. A lot of really interesting connections. The psalm opens up, Blessed is he who remembers the poor. As the treasure of the twelve, that should have been Judas's job to remember the poor, but we know he was greedy and did not do it. He would not remember the poor, and so he won't be blessed. Of course, Jesus will remember the poor. Indeed, Jesus even becomes poor in order to make the poor rich in an ultimate way. Jesus quotes from verse 9 of Psalm 41 to describe Judas lifting up his heel against him. But check out the surrounding verses in Psalm 41. This is so interesting. In verse 8, we read this. The enemy speaking of the psalmist, when he lies down, he will rise up no more. In other words, the enemy say of this psalmist, when he dies, he will stay dead. When he lies down in death, he will not rise up. But then verse 10, the answer comes from the psalmist. But, O Lord, O Lord, you will be merciful to me and will raise me up. In other words, the enemies of the psalmist say when, when, when he dies... He's dead. He's going to stay dead. But the psalmist goes on to say, No, I know, Lord, that You will raise me up. You will resurrect me. You will exalt me. You will vindicate me. Obviously, these themes from Psalm 41 are all coming to fulfillment in this hour. Taunting enemies, a betraying friend, and yes, final vindication. Resurrection from the dead for the Lord's faithful one. Further, when Jesus says, One of you... At this table will betray me. The disciples are perplexed by this. They want to know who it is. Peter and John are sitting closest to Jesus. Peter motions for John to ask, who is it? Jesus says, it is he to whom I shall give a morsel of bread when I have dipped it. A morsel of bread. Now, this is just a little side note here. You know, there's some people, some traditions, they want to do the Lord's Supper with what's called intinction, where you dip the bread in the wine. Okay, the only person who receives the bread that way in the New Testament is Judas. So I would suggest not doing it that way. But this is what's really interesting. The word for morsel there, the morsel of bread, is a very unusual word. It's a very rare word. One other place that occurs is Romans chapter 12, verse 20, where Paul writes... Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, give him a morsel. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Jesus is doing precisely what Romans 12 Commands, Or perhaps Paul wrote this command. This actually comes out of the Old Testament. But Jesus is fulfilling precisely this command. He is giving his hungry enemy a morsel. And in doing so, he is heaping coals of spiritual fire on his head. So if Judas repents at this point, having received this morsel from the Lord, if he repents, he can become a, a living sacrifice. But if he refuses to repent, he will be a dead sacrifice consumed by God's fiery wrath. This giving of the morsel to Judas is one final act of mercy towards him. One last opportunity for him to resist the devil and turn back to the truth. But because Judas is selfish and greedy, the morsel Jesus gives him is not a communion meal with the Savior, but with Satan. Verse 27, now after the morsel, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. You see again there how Jesus really is the one in charge, commanding even his enemies what to do. He's calling the shots. When Judas leaves, the rest of the disciples still don't suspect anything. they think perhaps he's going to buy something else for the feast or to give something for the poor? Verse 30 says, Having received the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Oh, what haunting words. It was night. When Judas goes into the night... He's going out from fellowship with Jesus and the other disciples. He's going out from the light into the darkness. He's going out from the upper room on a pathway that will ultimately lead him to the deepest depths of hell. He's going out from the light and love of God's presence. C.S. Lewis says that line, And it was night, is one of the most memorable lines in all of human history. It is indeed memorable. And obviously the point is not just that this happened after sundown. The point is Judas went into the darkness because he loved the darkness and hated the light. That's been a constant theme in John's gospel. It's dark. John's gospel will not mention daybreak again until Easter morning. So it is as if everything that happens from this point on Thursday, Friday, and through Saturday is covered in darkness. The light of the world Is being eclipsed. On Easter morning, the sun will rise. And that's what we find in John chapter 20, the light and glory of Jesus shining again in his resurrection. Of course, Judas is not the only one who loves the darkness that night. Peter will also, in fact, there's a lot of parallels between Judas and Peter. Verse 36, Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. What does this mean? Is this a cryptic reference to the fact that Peter will ultimately be murdered? Is is it a, a cryptic way of saying that when Jesus goes into heaven, Peter will ultimately follow him there? What exactly is being said? It could be all of those things. But Peter protests. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus says back, no, actually, he will deny me three times before the rooster crows. That rooster certainly being a fitting symbol of Peter's pride, Peter's cockiness, we could say. Peter says he wants to lay down his life for Jesus, but it will be Jesus who lays down his life for Peter. But understand, too, Jesus is not going to be blindsided or caught off guard by any of this, not by what Judas does, not by what Peter will do. That night, he knows it is all part of his father's plan to save the world. Jesus is no mere victim. He is in charge of everything that is transpiring. Now, this is crucial to see. All throughout John's Gospel, he has held together two aspects of the Gospel, two aspects of our salvation that we see held together in the rest of Scripture. We could call these two aspects forgiveness, and transformation. God forgives our sins, and he transforms our hearts. Just to give you one example of this earlier in the gospel, in John chapter 8, when Jesus stands up in defense of the woman caught in adultery, he says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, that is forgiveness, go and sin no more, that is transformation. They're held together there and everywhere else in John's Gospel. They're held together here in John chapter 13. These twin realities that comprise our salvation. Think about how this works in John 13. Obviously, the foundational emphasis of the passage is on Jesus cleansing us. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is a picture of Jesus' blood washing us for our forgiveness. The foot washing shows us what the cross will accomplish. The foot washing symbolizes the cleansing love of Christ in action. The foot washing pictures what the cross, what the shedding of His blood will accomplish for us. But the foot washing also becomes an example for us to follow. It becomes a kind of model, a kind of law in itself. Uh, look at uh, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, Do you understand what I've done to you? Obviously, they did not at this point understand, but they should have understood. When Jesus says, Do you understand what I've done? He is saying, This action I've performed is symbolic. Verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. The church is a hierarchy, not a democracy. Christ is the ultimate authority. He's the king. He's the Lord. Of course, there are lesser authorities in the church as well. But Jesus is saying, I am teacher, I am Lord, I am your master. What does this mean? Verse 14, he says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to what? How would you fill in that blank if you didn't know how the text went? Because I have washed your feet, you also ought to what? How would you fill in that blank? What should Jesus say? Should he say, because I have washed your feet, you should wash my feet to pay me back? No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, because I have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus doesn't ask us to pay him back. He asks us to pay it forward. He says, you know, we don't need to go wash Jesus' feet, but we need to wash one another's feet because he has washed our feet. And then verse 15, he sums this up. He says, for I've given you an example that is a pattern, a model that you should do to one another just as I have done to you. See, Jesus in love serves us, but now he asks us in love to imitate his service towards each other. Jesus worked for us and his work in us are held together perfectly in this model, in this example of the foot washing. The washing of the feet points to what Jesus will do on our behalf on the cross, but it also points to what the renewed Christian life looks like. Having washed our feet, Jesus hands us the towel and says, Now you wash one another. And we've got to remember that towel is like the scepter of his kingdom. That towel is a sign of rule and authority, just as Jesus is Lord over all and therefore got down on his knees. To wash the disciples' feet. So we being made sharers in his kingdom have been handed a towel. And we show we share in his authority by getting down on our knees and washing one another's feet. But Jesus also makes it clear we do not do this in our own strength. Jesus gives us his love in washing us. He pours his love into us. And now having received his love, he asks us to give his love to others. To share what we have received. To pass it on. To let his love flow into us, through us, and then out of us towards others. He loves us. We, in turn, express his love to others. So that when we fulfill this command, when we love others in this way, we are really loving them with the love of Jesus. It's the love of Jesus working through us to reach out to others. That's what Jesus goes on to explain in verses 31 to 35 when he gives this new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has embodied God's love and now he wants us to embody God's love as well. Jesus' new commandment is not just an ethical principle. It is a person. Jesus is the law of love in personal and historical form. We know from the rest of Scripture, love sums up the commandments. Love sums up the law. But now we can say love is summed up in Jesus. All of the old commandments are summed up in this new commandment. This new commandment is summed up in Jesus. He is the embodiment of the law because he is the embodiment Of God's love. And we have a share in Jesus. And because we have a share in Jesus, love is to be summed up in the life of the church as well. We are to embody this love in our community. We are to embody this new command, this pattern that Jesus has given to us. We are to embody this pattern of Jesus' love in our life together. Jesus says, this is the mark of his disciples. By this love, all men will know that we are his disciples. When we love one another as he has loved us, that's how the world can recognize we are his disciples. doesn't mean the world's always going to like it. But that's how the world will know that we are his. It's not by what we hate. It's not by who we hate. It's by how we love one another. It is not hatred for enemies. It is love for the brethren that mark us out. Uh, Christians could be known for many other things. We could be known for our doctrine, for our politics, for our dress. But those things are all downstream from the love we are called to show here. So important to see this. More people are brought into the church through the power of of Christians loving one another than any arguments we could give them. I mean, our arguments are important. Arguments matter. But it is the power of a loving Christian community that brings more people into the kingdom than anything else. And you need to understand the other side of that. More people are driven away from the church by Christians failing to love one another than any other reason. When we're unkind to one another, when we mistreat one another, it drives people away. This love means we are called to wash and serve and feed one another. We're not to settle for shallow relationships in the church. We're called to connect with one another deeply, to commune with one another. Love is the center of the Christian life, the center of Christian discipleship, the key to Christian community. And just as Jesus stooped in humility to serve us, we are called to stoop in service to one another. We are called to embody the same divine love as Jesus. And in doing so, we should be able to say, remember I said just a minute ago, it would be crazy for somebody to say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. But now Jesus is saying, I want you to be able to say, as a community of my disciples, if you have seen us, you have seen what God is like. Because you've seen, at least the, you've had a little picture, you've got a little taste through our love for one another. You get a little picture of what God is like. Paul unpacks this love for us in his letters with all his one another in commands. We're commanded to one another one another in a multitude of ways. Over 50 different times we're commanded to love one another in a particular way. We've got commands like pray for one another, honor one another, forgive one another, welcome one another. All of these are ways of showing the same kind of love, embodying this love of Jesus. It takes humility to receive love from Jesus. That's why Peter objected to it. You shall never wash my feet. But it also takes humility to give Love from Jesus to other people. We have to humble ourselves to receive Jesus' love. We have to humble ourselves to give that love to one another. That is the challenge of the new commandment. But when you understand what Jesus has done for you, you come to realize it's not that you have to wash one another's feet. Really, it's that you get to wash one another's feet. Because you come to see that towel is indeed a sign of kingship, a sign of royalty. Through the love of Jesus, we become one with God and one with each other. We come to embody Jesus' own love. Without this love, we are nothing. We are just clanging symbols and empty religionists. Without love, our religion profits nothing. But when we receive Jesus' love, When we obey his command to love one another as he has loved us, the world sees and knows that we are disciples of the crucified king. When the world sees that kind of love, they can see God in us. They can see the very heart of God. Let's pray together.